this podcast is seen by some of our friends as an excuse to have conversations with our favorite people in the world. And that is so true. And some of our favorite people have gone from, let's say, modest positions where they were just like us and used to hang out with us and gossip to becoming very, very fancy and running the world. And then they tend not to talk to us that much because they're very fancy and running the world. Well, today we have dragooned one of those old friends, Reza Bakir, to come back and talk to us even though he is jet-setting around the globe, giving advice to different countries, has just finished a stint as the central bank governor in Pakistan. And I am sure next week at the World Bank IMF meetings is going to be in all of the high-level secret discussions where people decide what's going to happen with the future of the international financial architecture. Now, I don't know how many of our inconvenient questions Reza will be able to answer, but we're so grateful that he was willing to trust us and come on our little podcast. So I want to welcome him, but I also want to throw out the first question, which I'm tempted to say is, how could you continue to be friends with two such utterly obscure people. But really, my first question is about the transition from a job at the IMF. And Reza, for those who know him, is one of the most modest, humble, generous people in our business, who even when he was high up at the IMF, would always make time to listen to other people never made you feel stupid but how does he how do you transition from that to a job such as the head of the central bank where i imagine you have to make really tough decisions and tell people they're being stupid and make tough calls about things like austerity especially in the context of a country like pakistan that has been in really severe financial distress for a while. So welcome, Reza. And can you tell us a little bit about this transition from being like us to being a master of the universe? Thank you, Mithu. Thank you, Mark. I am really honored, really delighted to be with both of you today. And Mithu, thank you very much for that overly generous and uh, far out of proportion um, introduction. Let me say, Honored on two counts. I'm honored, first of all, to be in the company of sovereign giants like uh, yourself, me to Mark. I'm also now doubly honored with uh, considered their friend of yours. And I very much recall all the discussions we used to have about sovereign debt issues, particularly when I was at the IMF and I was heading the debt policy division of the IMF for about four years when you remember me to be did a lot of work on the IMF's policy framework. So thank you to you as well as to Mark. I am happy to start off sharing a little bit about what the journey was for me like, you and particularly the transition. And I want to uh, mention this because uh, 
at the end of the day, you know, I really want to encourage other Pakistanis who are considering going back. And for that matter, more broadly, uh, people from emerging markets who come to the U.S. or to other countries to study and have opportunities to go back. Um, for me, uh, Mithu, I still remember when the phone call came uh, from Pakistan. Uh, I was leading my career. I was at that point the IMS uh, senior resident representative in Cairo. We had just started a program, uh, which was then the largest program for the IMF in the Middle East region. The program was just beginning to um, show results. So I was in my second year and I was in my office, in the IMF office in Cairo, an office that I had helped to build because I was the first res rep in years with the calling. And you no, know, me, I have been born, I was born and raised in Lahore, Pakistan, grew up there until I was college in the US. I always held very dearly the value of public service. And so when the call came, I was thrilled. I was also um, forced to think about some practical matters, Mithu. And you know, these practical matters are number one, that job of a central bank governor in Pakistan, historically has not been a job with the greatest amount of uh, job security. So I was very conscious that most of uh, my predecessors, should I accept the job, had not completed it. Also, public service does not uh, you know, do well on the compensation score and certainly I would be transitioning down to a fraction of my IMF compensation. And with two kids who are about to go to college soon, that was also a very practical consideration. But uh, it did not take me long to decide you know, that a call, an opportunity like this once in a lifetime to do public service. Also wanted my children to live through, um, you know, in their formative years, um, their, you know, one of their parents having done public service and the fact that they moved as well. So. So I, uh, you know, was honored to uh, accept that position and moved in May of 2019 from Cairo to Karachi uh, for a three-year term that I completed in May of 2022. I should say, uh, Mark and to that although working at the IMF pays you from a technical perspective about running a central bank, and by that I mean you are cognizant about monetary policy issues, you're cognizant about inflation targeting, about flexible exchange rates, about banking supervision. But to be quite honest, nothing could really have prepared me for the job of running a 5,000 plus employee organization, which at that time, the country was then in the midst of a big balance of payments crisis. And if I look back, I think, there were two real challenges. One was internal. It was how you know do we come up to speed as an institution to deal with the challenges. There were a lot of good people in the State Bank of Parks, but I was also keenly aware that I needed to bring in talent from outside as well. Internal set of challenges. A second was external set of challenges, and by external I mean external to the State Bank of Pakistan. I um, you know, was part of the uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan's economic team. And uh, being a member of that team, I was frequently in discussions about economic areas. And the external challenge I referred to was the tension between two goals. The goal number one, of stick to one area of matters pertaining to central banking. And this is an important goal because 
I had wanted to demonstrate to other members of the economic team as well the benefits of a division of labor and sticking to speak on areas related to one handed. But at the same time, the tension was with the goal of speaking up if I was in the room and I saw the prime minister being misguided by somebody else in the room. So on the internal front, it was primarily a challenge of how to get the institution, which is already a very good institution, to further strengthen itself internally to deal with the challenges, and including the challenges of communication with external stakeholders. And on the external front, it was um, safeguarding you know, the operational independence of the State Bank of Pakistan with the other important uh, players in the Pakistani scene, and also trying to be able to do my part that the Prime Minister gets the best economic advice. So let me stop there. Happy to get into any aspects more about what it's like to run a central bank in an emerging market that has tremendous economic challenges, but also a very, very vibrant, noisy democracy. Riza, thank you for that. And your, your answer kind of reinforced for me one of the reasons we were so excited to to get to talk to you on the podcast, which is that you have such a breadth of expertise at such a high level. And and I kind of, there are so many things I want to ask you, but I hope you can elaborate a little bit more on the transition. And in particular, I'm wondering if you think differently about the work that the IMF and its country missions do after your experience uh, running the the Central Bank of Pakistan, the State Bank, and whether you think the fund maybe should change the nature of its advice, take develop greater sensitivity to political dynamics within the countries it's working with, or if there are some other lessons that you took about the nature of the fund's work and the way the fund uh, does that work as a result of this experience. I'm hoping you can you can just shed a little light on that. Sure, Mark. First, on the transition, it's as though a truck hits you, Mark. I think from the beginning, from when the phone call came to when I was already appointed the governor, it may not have been more than 10, maximum 14 days. And in that period, you know, I had to make all the, make the decisions, my family first, the decisions with my wife, and I consulted two people that I really held in very high regard. One was um, the finance minister of Egypt, who is right now the finance minister of Egypt as well. I had been fortunate to develop a good close uh, uh, relationship with him and um, uh, always and still do respected him very highly. So he was one and the other was David Lipton who was then the IMF number two. Um, and uh, he had somebody who had given guidance in my career at the IMF and truly, you know, is somebody who had been, I think a global statesman as far as economic matters are concerned. And, and that advice together with you know, the, um, the wise counsel from my wife led to me deciding, making the right decision. And it was the best decision I ever made because the opportunities that I got, first of all, to, you know, be able to play a part in leading economic response of the country, the 2019 payments crisis, which you know, that's severe as Pakistan is failing right now, but we came out of it very well. 
In fact, we had a really great run, Mark, for about a good seven months from July of 2019 to February of 2020 when COVID struck. And then secondly, you know, in terms of uh, why I think it was uh, you know, such a tremendous opportunity, I got the chance to lead financial response of the world's fifth largest country when COVID struck. And it is fair to say that everybody, including policymakers around the world, were terrified of what is the right playbook because there was no playbook. I still remember a conversation with the IMF mission chief back then in the pin drop silence of curfew in Karachi because of the lockdowns. And I lived in a part of Karachi, which is very noisy at night. And I was pacing in my driveway, having a conversation with the IMF mission chief. Um, is a wonderful person who's really helped Pakistan a lot in its economic challenges. And he said to me, Reza, you do what you need to do to save your country. I remember those words. And, you know, the, uh, normally IMF is not out of advice. Normally, IMF has some advice for any kind of a situation you may find yourself in. And when the IMF says that, that you, you need to, you really do know then that things are hard. So, you know, being able to play a part to lead um, financial response uh, on the financial and monetary side, together with the finance minister, together with the other members of the economic team, that was really an opportunity of a lifetime. But let me come to the other question um, that you raised about what I learned about, uh, you know, the fund now that I was sitting on the other side of the table. And at the beginning, Mark, it was awkward. Um, before May 4th, when I was appointed, May 4th, 2019, I was a colleague. And after May 4th, I was literally, the IMF mission was in town, and the same people who used to share the same email domain as me were now people that I had to negotiate with sitting across the table. What have I learned? Uh, let me make a couple of points. I think the first thing that I learned is that Pakistan does itself out of disservice by really playing the blame game and the blame game of blaming the IMF. It is a very easy catch-all explanation to hide one's own challenges, and these are challenges primarily of governance. Why is it the case that a group of Pakistani economists themselves have not come together to put together a credible uh, economic reform program that the Pakistani authorities could follow without the need for going to the IMF? Why is it that Pakistan has had to go repeatedly more than 20 times to the IMF? So a blame game where you blame external agencies in Pakistan is always has, you know, a soft spot. Pakistanis have a soft spot for conspiracy theories. It's often a foreign hand behind some kind of a predicament Pakistan may be facing. So to me, number one, uh, we really, as a path to our own maturity, we have to grow out of it and we have to take ownership. And without ownership, there are very few lasting changes that occur. Now, that said, there is one area where I think the IMF would make an investment that would really have a big return uh, to its efforts. And that is an investment in improving its public image. You know, I used to work in the IMF. I worked in Thailand, I worked on any other particular places such as Portugal in the middle of uh, their own places. Never, never was I in a country 
where the IMS public image was as bad as I have seen in Pakistan. So my second point, you know, my first point was that I think we should, as Pakistanis, not fall for the very tempting blame game. My second point is that the IMF would make a very good investment with high returns on its investment to think about how does it improve its public image in Pakistan, because it is considered to be the doer of so many bad things. And a lot of that is really not based in reality. And ultimately, it is up to the staff of the IMF, both in the country as well as in Washington, D.C., to think of how they need to engage with all the people who are spreading the information of the IMF, which, you know, frankly, most of the time does not deserve. So, Reza, let me follow up on Mark's themes, but get to some of the specifics that I that I remember us talking about with our dear friend Jeremy on his back porch, but uh, you can correct me uh, about how the conversations went. But I, I, like Mark, I'm curious as to how, if at all, your views have changed. So my memory of conventional wisdom, both at the fund and in the sovereign debt literature was that there was a period where we were very worried for countries in financial distress about moral hazard, and particularly the version of moral hazard where countries were going to be too eager to default if we gave them the tools to engineer uh, relatively orderly defaults. And that was the time of the SDRM proposals and collective action clauses and all, all of that junk. And then people like Jeremy, and I, I think that you were definitely part of that intellectual move, said, you know, we looked, we look at the data and I think we have this completely upside down. Yes, moral hazard is very elegant. And we have believed this in our published papers for a long time. But what we see in the real world is that countries, because of political reasons, largely, are in fact too slow to default. They don't like to default. Governments fall when you default, or there are very high costs to the economy from the shock of a default, no matter how how well people have predicted it. And so really the problem is not that the defaults happen too fast, but they're too slow. And that we don't do the, the we don't make the difficult choices because the political flesh is weak. Now, you've seen now both sides of that, that coin firsthand both in advising countries from the perspective of the fund and being in the hot seat yourself. So without naming names, if you were to go back to being an academic now, uh, writing those papers in JPE like you used to when you were just out of grad school, do you have a more nuanced view on that now? My view is, as you articulated, Mithu, that 
countries are in fact good to default. And my experience uh, now as an observer, um, and if you just watch all the statements being issued out of Pakistan, my experience is that no sitting minister for their own personal reputation wants to be the one to be known as the finance minister who defaulted the country's obligations. And in Pakistan, certainly this being about every single finance minister, no matter um, which political party they may be from, have given statements uh, to this effect. And a uh, case in point was uh, towards the end of last year, when Pakistan paid out a maturity on um, its uh, Europe bond. Um, if it was the case, that um, one would be looking towards, uh, you know, debt restructurings as one of the uh, options, not the last option, one of the options to be deployed any time for what is in the best interest of the country, then an argument could be made that lets us not pay down private creditors um, because we may need to restructure and might as well do it now so that at least this particular bond would be part of the basket then that gets restructured and therefore we would have to um, impose less of a haircut on some others, which are a very difficult set of creditors. And Meetu, if you and Mark like, I'm happy to talk a little bit about Pakistan's particular debt situation because there's been a lot of commentary about you know, whether Pakistan would or not restructure. I have my own thoughts about looking at the creditor side of the balance sheet and what it means uh, for how easy such a restructuring would be. But we can come to that if you're interested. But let me finish answering the question you raised me to that in my experience, you know, this is the last resort. A debt restructuring is the last resort. So I am not in the camp uh, that thinks that having a orderly the restructuring framework is going to lead to, to many restructurings. Just I got to see upfront as uh, a member of the economic team of the Prime Minister of Pakistan, I got to see upfront what are the political economy considerations that weigh on the minds of leaders when they are looking at possibilities like these. So I hope that answers your question um, to an if there's just happy to talk about you know particular debt profile it, i think it whether it answered Mitu's question or not it, it was exactly i think what we needed to hear and i i want to take you up on your invitation to talk more about the particulars of pakistan's debt situation and what a sort of what the creditor side of the that equation looks like there are so many things we want to talk about the that are both specific to the that context, but also more broadly relevant. The role of China as a, a creditor, the what you referenced sort of your belief that uh, having an orderly workout process you know, would not create or increase moral hazard, but sort of um, I want to hear your thoughts on whether we have an orderly workout. <laughs> orderly workout process. So please, can you tell us your sense of the debt situation and its implications in Pakistan now, and then we can maybe lead into some of those more concrete topics? Sure, Mark. And um, just, um, you know, let me begin by just making a comment. You asked whether we have an orderly process. We don't have an orderly process. Um, 
you know, Sri Lanka it took I think more than a year that it had faulted for it to be able to go to the IMF board um, to it. Um, you know, the program through you have the countries that have also, that have often been mentioned as well. But let me come to Pakistan. And, um, you know, the comments that I want to make uh, should not be interpreted at all as me advocating or not advocating debt restructuring. Uh, the comments that I want to make are in the context that if Pakistan were to have a debt restructuring, what would that indicate? And I want to make two points. Point number one is that a debt restructuring in Pakistan will be very difficult as a process. It will be difficult as a process because most of the debt is the type of debt that is very hard to restructure. Most of this debt is official debt, i.e. owed either to, bi to multilateral official creditors or bilateral official creditors, or it is domestic debt. I'm happy to get into more some details as well. Let me make my first two points. Point number one, as a process, all the warning signs are there that the process will be difficult because the type of debt that dominates on the balance sheet of Pakistan is to creditors. That is going to be hard as a process. My, my second point is that even if we structure, even, even if Pakistan goes down the path of restructuring, it will be very hard to get a debt reduction. And I'm using that term debt reduction as to differentiate it from a rescheduling or just a flow treatment that doesn't reduce the stock of debt, but just pushes out the maturities. And I say this because, and it follows readily from my first point, the two major types of debt that Pakistan owes one to official creditors, they're not gonna jump at any opportunity to give a haircut, as well know, whether it's multilateral, uh, that's almost impossible. And for bilaterals, as you know, even in his heyday, Paris Club was uh, loath to give uh, debt reductions and would you know, continue to give reschedulings, even if insolvency of the country was staring them in the face. I don't know if you remember the example of Poland in the 80s, I believe. I think it got five reschedulings from the Paris Club over a course of 10 years until the Paris Club recognized that oops, it is an insolvency and we've wasted 10 years giving reschedulings and they gave a debt reduction and Poland never ever came back to the Paris Club. So, and then for the official debt, again, um, if it it's very difficult to give a meaningful debt reduction, if, um, sorry, and domestic debt, if any uh, domestic debt is made part of the restructuring because you could then aggravate the problem in the financial sector that you have. So, you know, uh, now all of this stems from the point that I made about the structure of the creditors. And, you know, if you look at the last time at staff report, which really is right now the only, um, you know, dependable breakdown of Pakistan's obligations. And it gives a breakdown as of June of 2021. So admittedly, it's a bit dated, but debt is a stock concept, so it doesn't change that much. So on that basis, you know, Pakistan's debt to GDP was estimated at about 78% of a GDP, of which about 50% of GDP is domestic debt, and about 28% of GDP is external debt. Of this 28% of GDP of external debt, about 24% of GDP 
is to official creditors, half and half, half roughly to multilaterals and half roughly to bilaterals. And then you can put in a little bit more for Chinese commercial banks, which, you know, depending upon how things are, might get treated as official, might not get treated as official. So the bulk of the external debt is to official creditors. Um, private commercial debt on the external side, now especially with that uh, Eurobond having been repaid, is not that much. Maybe in bonded debt is seven, eight billion dollars. And um, if you even bring in other um, commercial loans, uh, you know, non-Chinese commercial loans, you're really looking at about maybe three and a half percent of GDP in debt owed to private creditors. Even if you give a 50% haircut on that debt to private external creditors, you are really shaving off your debt to GDP ratio by about 1.5% of GDP. My point is that just writing down private creditors is not going to restore solvency in Pakistan if a determination has been made and the debt is unsustainable. Then if you look on the domestic side, a lot of this, uh, the domestic debt is held either by banks or in the, by, in the form of national savings certificates by retirees and a lot of uh, middle-class income earners. And touching those in any kind of a debt reduction manner is also going to be extremely difficult, let alone even considering a rescheduling of those obligations as well. So the point that I wanted to really make is that, you know, Pakistan's debt structure is such that number one, the process is going to be very difficult. How do you get these bilateral creditors uh, to coordinate as everybody has been speaking about on the discussions on the common framework? And then, you know, the other part being domestic debt. Now I have a bigger picture point to make also. And that is that, you know, given that Pakistan has been the poster child for the Belt and Roads Initiative, and given the geopolitical situation and particularly the tension between the US and China, and this anti-China rhetoric is one that unites both sides of the aisle in the US, it would really be unfortunate, Mark, to see the boardroom of the International Monetary Fund being the battleground for this battle between the US and China when the poster child of the Belt and Roads Initiative Pakistan is being brought to the board of the IMF for the request for a program which entails debt restructuring. And you can imagine the type of discussion that would take place about whether and how much China is or is not doing and the kind of debate that would generate in Congress as well as in other circles as well. So I think it is all the science to really become a very difficult process where politics could easily get ahead of the economics. So Reza, this is fantastic. Thank you so much. I, I want to ask a little bit more about the role of China and my sense is very similar to yours uh, without putting words in your mouth, which is that we're getting caught uh, between having a sort of pragmatic and rational discussion about the fact that 
China is now a crucial player in international lending and has important uh, development goals that benefit both it and many of the countries around the world that need assistance in the context of the West having pulled back. And then this sort of jingoistic approach uh, that sadly is present in the US in spades about how China is now the, the new evil empire when we're not talking about Putin's Russia, that is. So I've been watching uh, Pakistan, of course, and I've seen that Pakistan has turned to China for what I might say is emergency assistance. Uh, there's also talk of uh, central bank swap lines. So my impression is China is trying to help. They they have a lot of lending in there already, but they're providing uh, what you might think of as uh, sort of emergency financing at a time when Pakistan is not able to access uh, other capital other than this IMF program uh, that they have. So if that is the role that China is playing in helping countries when nobody else will help them, what does that tell us about reforming the international financial architecture to take in to consideration that they are playing this this very different role from what you know most new entrants then i can take the example of india for example would play and have been playing uh, i mean what's the what's the path out of this so that we don't just keep throwing insults uh, across the aisle let me make a few points, Neetu. It's a very difficult question. Let me try to make a few points, which I hope will help or at least shed light from a direct perspective. And my first point is that, and my and this is, you know, from a perspective of a former governor of the Central Bank of Pakistan, that China has been very helpful to Pakistan, and I am grateful to China for the support that it provided during my tenure when Pakistan was looking to other bilateral official creditors to fill in the hole in the financing as part of the IMS financing assurances, and we needed bilateral official creditors to step forward. China did, and I'm grateful for that. Number two, I now transitioning to speaking more at a global level, as you mentioned, I myself, not a big fan of debates or discourse that takes the form of China bashing. To me, China is acting like any large bilateral creditor would. So when I used to head the debt policy division of the IMF for four years, I also was the IMF's representative to the Paris Club. And every second month, I used to go there for the meetings. And, you know, I got to know a lot of bilateral official creditors. And my number one conclusion is no matter what the color or the creed of the creditor, a creditor thinks like a creditor. They want to be prepaid in full and on time. And China is no different. I think 
what has really made the debate difficult is that there is a perception um, on the part of China that others are being generous with its money. Now, if right now one large Western country was the major creditor to the countries that are having their problems right now, I'm sure that large Western country would not appreciate if China would be making statements about how generous that country needs to be about the use of its own money. Now, China has also put forward, I think, uh, incrementally some ideas of its own, um, such as I think the most recent statements that came out from the PBOC that um, MDBs should participate in debt restructurings. Um, I want to make taking off of that a broader point as to what is the way forward. I think the IMF is you know, doing its part is trying to get conversations going. Um, it organized this debt forum, which was closed door with many official uh, representatives, some from the private sector. Um, it's good. It's an effort in the right direction. I think where um, China could help itself more is actually putting forward a coherent, uh, consistent, thought through framework for what it thinks is a better approach if the common framework is not the right approach. I think our discourse, international discourse is missing such, a, uh, such, as a, such an alternative. We know what um, is out there, but we do not know what China and the other new creditors think is a better framework. And in fact, it may be to China's own interest that they do this not as their own proposal, but they get a few other uh, new creditor countries together. Um, they get India, they get um, Saudi Arabia, they get maybe South Africa, they get maybe Brazil. I would have said Russia in normal times, but things are a little bit different with the war going on. So that the world sees an alternative. And it may be far out that we don't think is practical, but at least it will help to generate some convergence. So I think China would help itself. I have two points to make. Number one, that I think what is missing is a strong voice from China. Number one. My second point is about why there isn't a strong voice coming out of China. And I have heard various explanations. One, is that there is a genuine difference of view between different agencies in China. PBOC, for instance, you know, typically has had the most internationalist view, but then there are other institutions and an institution like Exim Bank of China, which is the largest probably uh, lender right now, has been not very active, not very present with commentary in a lot of such fora. So one reason could be that um, there is no um, consistent view within China, but that's, I think, a solvable problem as long as the problem is escalated at the highest level in the Chinese authorities. Another could be that perhaps China wants to quietly do deals bilaterally, and if it assumes a seat in the forefront advocating a framework, then it would make it perhaps difficult for it to conclude some bilateral deals quietly with some other countries. I am not privy to what may be the reason, 
But I do think that one way to move this discussion forward is for a group of the new creditors, either together or even China as the largest player in the room, to come forward with a thought through complete framework for what it thinks would be better than what is at stake. And if it is the MDBs as part of it, well, let's have a discussion. Uh, you know, even the IMF did the trust where it effectively gave some debt relief. Um, institutions have participated in debt relief previously, such as the HIPIC and the MDRI initiatives. So if China makes proposals, let us not throw them out of the you know, door immediately, because I think our goal should be to have an engagement with the largest creditor in the room, rather than to be speaking past each other. Reza, we've you've been so generous with your time already, and and I'm really grateful for that. And I want to take advantage of your generosity just a little bit more, if I can squeeze in another question before we wrap. Um, I'm tempted to, to... Mark, I'm in the company of sovereign giants, so I'm the one who is uh, enjoying this conversation more than you and me too. Well, that's that's very kind of you. I, I appreciate that. I, I I wanted to shift gears a little bit, if we can, because um, one of the, the difficulties that Pakistan illustrates is the continued difficulty that climate related emergencies are going to pose to countries that are already experiencing a degree of debt distress. And I I wanted to ask you whether you thought there was a role in restructuring discussions for taking climate-related concerns into account. I Many of the proposals for doing that, and we talk about green bonds and blue bonds and things like that, that Me Too and I have talked about on this podcast before. Many of them I view both as an outsider, but but also with a fair degree of skepticism. And yet I, I feel like this is such an important objective to find ways to direct financing to environmental objectives that I'm wondering if you can share some thoughts on that. Is there a role to play here for climate-related finance? And if so, how do those concerns meaningfully get taken into account in restructuring talks? There is definitely a role, Mark. Um, I think there are two aspects to your question. There's a domestic aspect as well that we haven't spoken about um, as to what can different institutions do to um, address the climate issue. And then there is the external aspect as to how can um, the climate issue factor into the discussions regarding debt. The way I look at it, is the following. Uh, Pakistan, again, is a country that, you know, uh, as you may remember the news about the floods last year, you know, has been on the receiving end and it's not gonna get any better. Uh, it's a poor country. And I think the images that flashed ac across TVs all over the globe, I think reminded to me that Pakistan should be more on the forefront of this discussion globally about how, um, climate and debt, the intersection of those two things can work to Pakistan's advantage. Now, having said that, I share your skepticism that all of the proposals that are out there are not one that seem to be very tractable to easily take forward. But I also, um, I wish, let, 
that means in a positive way. I wish that Pakistani authorities on our own side had a coherent, workable proposal to uh, to to advocate for, which would allow for Pakistan to get needed resources on managing climate risk. Pakistan is a very small contributor to global warming, but is um, a country that is on the receiving end of the consequences of global warming. Uh, uh, you know, for Pakistan to propose itself a well thought through proposal on the financing that it needs for that purpose and practical ways in which debt relief, for instance, could generate that financing and what it would mean also for any type of participation from private sector creditors as well. This is a complicated area, you know, just if Pakistan, if Pakistan were to have a plain vanilla debt restructuring, I hope that, you know, the authorities that lead it are one that are able to guide Pakistan through that very complicated space. When you add climate on top of it, and the fact that one would have to be a trailblazer, it really is a very tall ask of a country that is grappling with so many issues right now, especially at the political level. So, so my outlook is not that um, enthusiastic right now, but it's not because I don't think it's an important direction to push. On the domestic side, I don't want to mention something is tangentially related, but I was very happy that during my time in the State Bank of Pakistan, we had promoted green guidelines for, um, for our domestic banks uh, about in terms of their project appraisal when they are lending to how would they reflect green considerations into their decision making i do think that in a country like pakistan even if you look at domestically a institution like a central bank can play an important role because a lot of the actual investment is done by commercial banks and using that power as a regulator um, i think there is scope for the regulator to push more towards promoting the use of more green investments and also promoting the use of, um, of uh, investments in managing the risks from climate. I'll just mention one particular example that we introduced a program for concessional financing for solar. Actually, this is one of the things when you asked earlier about the IMF, um, that I wish they would look at these things more openly uh, because it was a point of difference between me and the IMF. The scheme was simply that the central bank would generate its own liquidity on concessional basis that it would lend to a commercial bank and tell the commercial bank that it could on lend it to a private party so long as that private party was making investments in solar energy, i.e. providing solar panels, installing them, or importing them, or manufacturing them. Now, this to us was a tool. It was a tool because market prices, if they borrow at market rates, would be one that are not internalizing the positive externality that exists from promoting the use of solar. And we thought that it was a good use of central bank to use this liquidity. Around the world, central banks typically have used liquidity to buy government bonds. We certainly didn't want to do that in Pakistan. If anything, the central bank in the past had been guilty of doing that too much. We wanted, when we had the ability to use our power to create money, to use it for this purpose that we will 
lend to a commercial bank at a very concessional rate. The commercial bank keeps 100, 200 basis points for its administrative work and for it to do the credit assessment. But then it's the commercial bank that then identifies private investors, parties that want to invest in solar, and they get uh, capital, both working capital as well as project finance at much concessional terms. And we saw a huge take up in the solar financing facility and the huge take up would then sometimes be uh, the source of um, differences of view between us and the IMF team back then. So we're at 50 minutes, but I'm going to, I'm going to, just take advantage one more time of your generosity. I, and I, I want to step back for just a second. I One of the things that you had said earlier, Reza, uh, intrigued me. And um, I don't think I misheard, but I I would like to ask you to say a little bit more. Um, and it was in the context of saying that one thing that would be constructive would be for Chinese authorities to put forward more concrete proposals about um, what... Uh, of greater bilateral creditor collaboration in in debt workouts would look like, but also that there was some perhaps an obligation on the more traditional bilaterals and multilaterals to take Chinese proposals seriously, um, including maybe the proposal that MDBs consider giving up their preferred creditor status. Do you think that proposal? is intended to be I, from from my armchair i've assumed that proposal was a non-starter and that the chinese were raising it as um you maybe a source of potential leverage or maybe as a negotiating point but do you think there's a future in which some adjustment of the role of mdbs is is feasible maybe desirable uh, I, I just was hoping you could say a little bit more about whether that proposal had some, there's some version of that proposal that might be constructive. I have two considerations in mind when I made that comment. One is about the process and the process of engagement, the process of how to get the major decision makers, stakeholders in the same room. And one is about the substance as is what would we want to see in a global financial system. And uh, uh, both of these are in the context of whether or not MDBs should participate. Okay. Now, on the process, I think um, it is good to have a dialogue. And I think that um, if China articulates its um, vision, and uh, in fact, it writes a white paper in which it also addresses the question about if MDBs participate, what does it mean for the global financial architecture? I think that would be a good step forward for the debate on this issue. And China need not do it alone. They could do it together with a few other important um, new accredited countries. Some of the examples that I mentioned, India, Saudi, others. And if, you know, given uh, the foreign relations between India and China, if um, it's difficult for uh, them to be in a group where the other is the leader, they could appoint a country like Saudi Arabia or Brazil to be the front um, on this, uh, and uh, they could all then be in the room together. But my point, Mark, was that a thought-through proposal that takes into account also implications if MDB, MDBs were to participate uh, would be a 
much bigger step forward than anything else that I see going on right now, where it's the same group of people mostly repeating the same things um, about what is wrong with official bilateral predator uh, coordination. Now, that was my comment about the process and that there is value in having a collaborative process. My comment now on substance is that I think there is a distance between a MDB participating in some form. And by MDB, I really mean the multilateral development banks. I leave the IMF out um, as the most senior creditor. There is a distance between an MDB participating and an MDB losing its preferred creditor status. There has been particip de facto participation before, HIPIC and MDRI. That has not meant that an, you know, MDBs have lost their preferred creditor status. There can be ways in which this discussion can be held. I think that we have we convinced ourselves that there is no possible way to have this discussion uh, without um, you know, throwing the idea out upfront? I'm of the view that let's engage, okay? And uh, maybe we do find constructive ways in which after some give and take, uh, some kind of a proposal can be brought to bear, but it is critical. Um, to hear from those who are the largest creditors right now. Reza, thank you so very much. I have many other questions that I want to, to ask you on this podcast, but we are over time now. And so we'll have to leave Sukuk financing and thinking more about what it was like to work with a cricket giant you know i am i i gotta complain i i told my mom my friend is becoming the central bank governor for pakistan under imran khan and she said wow can, can we get an autograph because of course my mom thought imran khan was the most handsome man in the world at at some point uh and I didn't get the autograph. I didn't get to go to any cricket. All we did do is still talk about debt restructurings and debt crises <laughs> and like the important things in life we don't get to discuss. But Mark has barred me from talking about cricket and when we're going to meet up to go see some World Cup games. So thank you, Reza. This has been incredible. And it, it, you, you've raised a number of really important questions that I hope get meaningful discussion at the annual meetings since the G20 meetings in Bangalore a little while ago seemed to have been nothing but a damp squib. So I, I, I know you will be at those meetings and you will be in uh, the key discussions. And I very much hope that uh, something good for our progress as so many debt restructurings seem to be on the horizon that that actually happens. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts for continuing to be our friend, even after you became so fancy and for coming on our little podcast. Mita, thank you very much to you as well as to Mark. It's as I said, it has been a real honor uh, for me. Um, and uh, trust me, through all our engagements, Meedu, I've learned a lot more from you than the other way around.